0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast. I'm Steve Madden. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and General Manager of MMM. And with me today is my guest, Kara Dugan, President of Razorfish Health. Hey, Kara.
1: Hey, Steve. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Nice to talk to you again. We, uh, we did this over the winter, and this is, uh, this is part two of uh, of discussing uh, the results of a survey that MMNM and Razorfish did together. Uh, the partnership paradox. Let me, uh, let me set it up a little bit, a little introductory ramble, so that uh, people understand what exactly it is we're talking about. Pharmaceutical reps, patients, and fellow HCPs are trying to get closer to doctors at a time when they're being driven further apart by the pandemic. A Q4 2020 study conducted by mm and and Razorfish Health revealed unexpected truths for marketers, that are now being released in the ebook, the partnership paradox that MMM has produced. In today's podcast, Kara and I will explore that data and those truths to help marketers solve this partnership paradox. Again, Kara, welcome.
1: Thank you. Yeah, this, this ebook is a wealth of information. In fact, it's been in the works for a little while, as you mentioned, and we've been referring back to it and checking trends as we speak to our clients about how to prepare for what's next. And we're always looking at what's next.
0: Yeah. So when when we talk about a partnership paradox, what what exactly is it? What is the paradox?
1: Well, the paradox is we have reps and we have patients and we have fellow HCPs that are trying to gain access to HCPs. And whether it's to inform about a new product or whether it's to hear about other real-world experience, there's a lot of access issues. So as so many people are trying to get closer to the physician, the world is pushing us all apart. And so what we're trying to do as marketers is help our clients maintain those relationships despite the lack of physical interaction.
0: So they can't, uh, reps can't get into CHCPs and it's harder than ever to reach them uh, digitally because they're inundated with email and everything else and there are all kinds of restrictions around it. So what are you telling people? What recommendations uh, do you have that came out of the study?
1: Well, there's four main lessons that we see, and they, they may sound counterintuitive on face value, but again, if you really dig in, this is the data that almost 900 physicians provided to us. And so the first one is the less you say, the more they'll listen. And okay. what we really mean by that is allowing others to tell your story. So we know about 67% of the physicians are looking for peer-to-peer medical education. They really wanna hear about real-world experience. And that's where what we call the COL, the Connected Online Leader, comes into play because we are seeing community doctors have very active Twitter presences. We're seeing, uh, for instance, Jefferson Health has a chief medical social media officer who is very active on TikTok. And so how can we get our message and work together with these influencers to get the message out there um, from really credible sources?
0: COL, uh, by the way, is, stands for Connected Opinion Leaders, um, which is great, which I think is different from KOLs, um, you know, Key Opinion Leaders. Um, the, the connectivity here is, is what matters. So does RFH's uh, Senior Vice President for Social have anything to do with any of what you're doing?
1: Yeah, we made a strategic hire late last year, We, as you say, an SVP in social, and she has a broad-based background both in consumer and HCP. She worked in a public relations firm, and she's created what we call MD Engage, and MD Engage is an end-to-end process where we identify those influencers based on their reach. So what we're seeing is clusters oftentimes and you want to vet the quality of that cluster so is that influencer really reaching the type of people that our clients want to reach and once you vet that and confirm that then you try to work with that influencer on providing information and you can either provide and and really track their amplification or the gold standard really and the goal is to co-create so that it really sounds authentic from this the influencer's voice. And that's the process that we do right from the start, identification all the way through amplification and tracking.
0: You used a really important word there. You talked about the quality uh, of the connections that these people have, because it's not just all about sheer numbers uh, and reach, it's about the right reach, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're really trying to mimic your KOL's influence through a COL in, the, in today's environment. So it, it's still looking for that same quality, that same um, reputation. And you do have to do quite a bit of vetting too because there's misinformation everywhere. And even, you know, sometimes physicians can have incorrect information. So that's part of the, the role of the marketer is to make sure the information is vetted through all those correct sources. Um, but that is, that is still key, whether you're working with a COL or a KOL, the quality the credibility, and the authenticity. You know, we can't stress that enough. It's um, our our physicians will speak from their heart and what they believe.
0: Yeah, and you can't fake fake the authenticity. Nor would
1: you want to. You know, as soon as you sound like a marketer, it it defeats (laughs) the purpose. That's why we say the less you say, the more they'll listen. If you can have the right, if you can have your information coming from the right credible source, you shouldn't need to say as much.
0: So if all this is going on, Right, what's, what, what's a rep to do? What's, what's, what are, what's their role now?
1: Oh, we, we joke about the pendulum swinging, you know, last year, the rep is dead and now it's long live the rep. And I think there was probably indeed.com was probably crashing with reps, you know, looking for, for new jobs. And then like anything, sanity sets in and you realize roles don't go away, they get redefined. And in this case, the rep's role has been redefined in what we like to think of as an orchestrator. And so, you know, lo and behold, the, the the research shows that physicians still very much want contact with the rep. Over 80% are really finding that interaction important, particularly around new product launches or longitudinal studies. So again, this hunger for real-world data, what can you share to prove that a product is safe? They're looking for head-to-head data to be explained. Because you know, just because you're a new drug now, there's there's so many other options you really do need to stand out and the reps are often the most capable at explaining that differentiation. But you really have to be careful, you know, in a world where you're gonna have limited access or some of that access is going to be virtual, this is where the rep has to orchestrate that communications plan. So where's the most important data to put in front of a face-to-face interaction versus what can be pushed out in a digital environment and still have, you know, very strong impact? Because I don't think we'll go back to the same cadence of in-person rep interaction
0: orchestrate, there's that word again. Um, do, do you have a, a real world example?
1: Well, we do. We have a client whose product you know, simply wasn't going to do well during COVID. I won't go into detail. But they had a contract sales force engaged. And what they decided, the reps brought information about COVID-19, all in public domain, as well as CDC guidelines. And they spent their detailed time in person explaining this. And it was so incredibly helpful because of what you mentioned earlier, they are so inundated with information. They couldn't even keep up a lot with the CDC. And so what that rep did, or that group of reps is they pivoted from selling to service. And guess what? They were seen the most often in that in that company's portfolio because they were able to pivot we had another anecdote that was rather funny from a different rep. Oh, Their physicians are fully in PPE garb where they weren't previously. And they said, you know, we really love this dosing card, but it doesn't fit in the pocket of my PPE lab coat. It used to fit in my suit jacket pocket or my pant pocket. So can you redesign that? And so it sounds small, but these anecdotes that we as marketers get from the reps to make for optimal contact is invaluable. And so their role as, you know, marketing liaisons or connecting the physician directly to an MSL, that's also been very popular during COVID, they can pull those levers better than anyone.
0: Yeah. So it's like you said, the, the, that role isn't going to go away. It's just been redefined.
1: Yeah. And you have to think strategically, like the physical rep interaction, it's like a media channel. And how do you use that wisely? If you only get precious time for in-person, what is the messaging you want to highlight in that? Precious time. We were hearing stories where the rep—it's it, it, gotten better, but the rep had to enter a back door and and literally stand in the broom closet. They had to remain in there so that they had no physical contact with any patients, but they still wanted to have the information. And so, as soon as the physician was available, they opened the closet broom door. You know, the broom closet door had a brief interaction um, and really you have to get right to the point. They couldn't pass on an IVA. They couldn't share anything. So it's really pivoting, orchestrating, and you know, the, the quality reps are ready to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, standing in a broom closet to, to get an opportunity to talk to someone um, makes, makes me glad uh, I'm an editor and not necessarily <laughs> a former rep. <laughs> not sure if I'd be willing to go quite that far, but I'm glad someone is. So we've talked a lot, you know, in, in this podcast and in the previous one we did, we talked an awful lot about how the rep's role is changing, right? But what about, you know, what about the other person uh, in this equation, the HCP? How is the, how is the doc's role changing?
1: Yeah, the, the, the insights from the research were really telling it is not an enviable time to be an HCP either, you know. We find that the HCPs, and this is tough to swallow, but the HCPs need to give up some control to gain control. And what we mean by that is the HCPs that are really shifting to seeing the patient as a collaborator and not a conspirator, are really coming to the best outcomes, which is really what we're all here for, is better patient outcomes. Um, 78% of the HCPs said that their patients are more informed today than they were at the beginning of their careers, which isn't surprising. But what is also um, interesting to note is that is a good thing. And I think that's a shift. We did a study a couple of years ago where we found, um, it was called the shift from paternalism to partnership. And so what's happening with the new demographic face of HCPs being more female, more diverse, more digital natives, they are willing to come into common ground and and engage in shared decision-making with their patients, perhaps at a greater degree than, than physicians in the past that had more of a paternalistic relationship with their patients. And again, those are the doctors that are maintaining positive, I say control, but a positive engagement with their patient.
0: So I understand that you have uh, an example of how this worked.
1: I suspected our whole family was down with COVID, but we got the test and it came out negative. So I had the vaccine appointments, but a funny thing happened on my way to the vaccine appointment. I said, you know what, I'm going to switch it to an antibody test because if I have the antibodies, I'm not quite ready to get the vaccine. I made that decision solely on my own. I got my antibody results through the, you know, through an email from uh, the lab company, I looked them up, I Googled it, and then I made an appointment, happened to be a telehealth appointment because that works best with my lifestyle, with my physician to say, here's what I think this means, I think I need to hold off on vaccination until blank, what do you think? And in this instance, I took the control. I didn't ask permission or, or for a point of view to get the test, I did that myself. But I wasn't willing to move forward with a vaccine appointment without a consult with that physician. Therefore, he still maintains control of my overall treatment and health. But, you know, he he, he can't and physicians can't say, well, why did you do that without con- consulting with me first. You, know, you have to give the patient that control to approach the engagement the way they want. And I thought that was a very good example. I was living it without realizing it, but you know, it kind of uh, highlighted some of the insights in the report.
0: This sounds um, very much unlike the medical uh, establishment that I dealt with mm. when I was a younger, uh, a younger person. Um, and it certainly sounds a lot different from the training it's, it would seem that the training required uh, in order to, to deal with this new reality is a lot different from training that um, people my age who are physicians might have had. Do you have suggestions from medical schools about changing the training?
1: I think they're further along than they realize if you think um, what kind of education is taking place virtually. Right? The physicians are probably being educated a lot more in virtual environments, and so it's really gonna spill over to the practice, even working across teams to get projects done, conferring with people in a virtual world, using online resources. My guess is the behaviors that we're using to teach are going to spill into the behaviors in practice, and I think, again, with new classes of people that are digital natives, they're probably closer than they think but yes it has to be codified it has to be trained i mean things where you mentioned physicians of the past they didn't know what yelp was they didn't realize their whole patient experience could be rated that that could be a reflection upon them everything from calling for the appointment to the follow up not just the time that the physician spends in the exam room so they really have to understand that a lot of the control is with the, is with the patient and how can they Um, turn that into a positive. How can can they ensure that they provide a good end-to-end experience?
0: So, you know, you mentioned Yelp, uh, and Yelp wouldn't exist without technology. And it would be, uh, it would be impossible to go uh, for an entire MMM podcast without talking a little bit uh, about the impact of data and technology uh, on the HCP. What, what did you learn uh, in the study about uh, data and technology in regard to the HCP?
1: We, we believe that non-personal does not mean impersonal. And the reason we can believe that is the data is allowing us to get to know HCPs and patients better than ever. Um, if we look at the HCP specifically, uh, only about 50% would say that the communication we bring to them feels personalized. So there's definitely area of opportunity what, what we've always known is we understand what we call those, those lab coat moments. We know they're prescribing behavior, but what's really changing, and in the case of Razorfish with the um, acquisition of Epsilon, is we start to understand the blue gene moments, right? We start to marry the clinical and the cultural. So we could take those prescribing behaviors and match them with shopper data, e-commerce data, with um, media consumption data, and you can start to really get very targeted. So, you know, in the past, we may have been targeting a segment of high prescribers and MS that were early adopters of a particular drug. And all that remains true. But now we also know that that physician prefers messaging about dosing during their lunch hour via email when they're in the EHR so they can prep for their next patient visit. But at night, they want to breeze around the dot-com for information on patient support. You know, what kind of patient support does that drug offer that they didn't have time to get to in the immediacy of their day? And so when you marry the prescribing behaviors plus their media consumption behaviors, you can get very targeted in the message. And then it's better quality.
0: And they can get more personal, uh, which, is, which is always good because that, that's going to drive better outcomes. Um, One of the
1: things we say we do today, you know, we have these moments of personalization that we need to shift to personalization across moments. And what we mean by that is, yes, you reach them with a relevant message, but then the next message, you might've repeated it again, or it might've sounded uh, earlier in the journey. What we're trying to trace together is the longitudinal day. If you like this message during lunch and this during dinner, because of your schedule with patients or because of what, work from home has done, you know, the HCP schedule has bled as much as uh, many of ours. And how can, how can you take advantage of that to get them the most relevant messaging at the right time? And what the data can do between, you know, customer data platforms, automation, messaging automation, it's it's really exciting. And we're doing that in partnership with Publis's health media, learning how to activate that.
0: Day part in healthcare. Yeah. Minute.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can get really specific. The Google was in recently and shared an example of physicians looking for information, say on informatics, maybe reading Wired, and then they may be switching to the New Yorker to learn about the cultural impact of preventative health and and vaccinations, or they might go to Self Magazine to learn about what women are looking for in terms of female physicians. And you see those are interesting places to reach our physician in cultural moments with clinical messages. Um, So I thought that was an interesting implication for reaching our physician in these personalized ways.
0: It helps the physician too, because it gives them a, a broader frame of reference and it, and it helps the marketers because it gives them multiple touch points
1: Exactly, um,
0: when they might have their guard down a little bit. So it's good that you can get more personalized uh, in how you're dealing with uh, in reaching HCPs. But one thing that's come to the fore during the pandemic has been more telehealth visits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a few telehealth visits. You it sounds like you have as well from what you just said. Um, do we run the risk of losing a personal touch there by doing everything, including, you know, treatments uh, via via Zoom call?
1: It's, it, it's imperfect. I think um, for certain disease states, you know, for first time, biologic writing, not ideal. For physicians that need to touch and feel a patient's um, parts of the body and symptomology, obviously, not ideal, and then there's cohorts of patients that you know perhaps are not comfortable in that environment, but there are ones where it is proving beneficial, where we see you know patients that are more open and honest about symptomology they're willing to admit things perhaps about being truthful about smoking and, and drinking habits or you know, what, what kind of symptoms you're, you're displaying that they just wouldn't be comfortable saying three feet away from a physician. So I think it's going to be a learning curve of where are these therapeutic areas where it does seem to be benefiting patient outcomes and really focusing on training up the physicians in that regard and, you know, development, developing materials for that environment. But I, it's not perfect for every area. And I know a lot of physicians are happy to be back to more regular office hours in person.
0: As our, as our patients I think yeah um, so Kara, listen we' we're, we're almost out of time but I would be remiss if I uh, if I let you get away with <laughs> mentioning the fact that uh, you've been on the job for about uh, in, in this position for about six months now right
1: yeah yeah you're at and, razorfish uh, health
0: yeah and uh, and razorfish has had had we all one hell of a year <laughs> Um <laughs> What have you learned in the past year from the pandemic? And what have you learned in the six months since you've been, um, since you've been the big boss?
1: Well, it, it also happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month. So I say both in my personal life and my professional life to really try to find those silver linings. In, in the case of um, me personally, I, I, I could spend a lot more time and peek over to see my kids even when they're having lunch. But from a professional standpoint, we were a three geographic, we are a three geographic location uh, company with offices in Chicago, New York, and Philly. And one of the beautiful things that's happened is it's broken down geographic silos. So we are mixing and matching teams where we typically probably put a team together that were centralized in one city. We are mixing that up. We're getting new fresh teams and perspectives and we're hiring like many companies from markets that are outside of that three geographic space. So I love the fact that you you get on a call and you have no idea who lives where, what office they're affiliated with. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the talent. So I'd say, you know, the silver linings um, for us have really, from a company standpoint, outweighed the negative. And you know, it's been a year for DEI right. really in that journey where I think the learning there is, is risk saying the wrong thing versus saying nothing at all. There, there are many of us that are learning. I had good advice to meet people where they're at. You know, different people are more advanced in their allyship, but to really understand intent. And to try to educate, and we've had several brave spaces that have really brought us closer together as a company. I like to think so. That's that's probably been another positive outcome of negative factors.
0: And is there is there anything else? I mean, that's like what you what you've talked about are sort of. Uh, cultural phenomenons, but like strictly from the point of view of running the business. um, Yeah, from a
1: a business standpoint, you know, like many in health, we had a banner year. And so now is the time. Now is the time to take those moonshots, invest, fail fast. We're, we're working very hard at retention because it's such a dynamic market. And so how can we look at our high performers and stretch them into new kind of areas of expertise? And they're raising their hand to say, yes, if you give me that opportunity here, I'd love to do that. And so really trying things we didn't try before, um, there seems to be an embracing of of taking a chance. And so that's what we're doing. We have uh, a few things where we're investing in and we'll be excited to to bring that to MM MM&M in the future and give you more detail.
0: Well, I can't. Uh, I can't wait to hear it, and I hope that you give it to us exclusively because uh, because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> um, love you, Steve. But, uh, yeah, but but Kara, it's always a pleasure. Uh, my my guest uh, on the MMM podcast has been Kara Dugan, the uh, not so new anymore president of Razorfish Health. She's always a great interview. Uh, always always love these conversations. I hope we can have one soon, Kara. Thanks very much for being on. That
1: sounds terrific. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, MMM.